And it is better that we are in your courts for one day than anywhere else. So just praise you. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So great to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So I want to take just a second, if I may, to thank you all for, for praying for us. Um, it's been kind of a rough week with Tania's dad passing and Wayne Hunt's brother. Um, so we want to thank you all for walking through us or walking with us through that valley. And so, I also, today is going to come with a caveat. Um, my voice is not very strong, so um, I will do my best. But just be forewarned, if I start cracking like Peter Brady um, when he went through puberty, that's what that's all about. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 19. And we're going to start at verse 28, and we're going to go through verse 44. It is um, scripture that you should be pretty familiar with. So I want to welcome you to Palm Sunday, which marks the beginning of Holy Week in the church which starts with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and culminates with the resurrection of our Lord and Savior on Resurrection Day, which we will celebrate next week. And in between those events, we have the Last Supper, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is arrested, then he's put on trial, he's beaten, eventually found guilty and sentenced to die on a cross. He was dead, and he was buried, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. But if I may, I'd like to focus on the triumphal entry and what's going on there. This is a story that's in all four of the Gospels. At this time, Jesus' popularity is through the roof. People want to see the one who has raised the dead, made the lame to walk, and has given sight to the blind. They want to see the one who was resurrected. Oh, I already said that, didn't I? They each, all four gospel writers have a different focus when they're telling the story. So part of the challenge for us as we look at this story, is not to blend them all together, but stay in the story that Luke is trying to tell. So let's read Luke's account in Luke 19, starting with verse 28. And it goes like this. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. 
untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say that the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on it, on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from you, from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Let's pray. God, our gracious Heavenly Father, we just come to you this day. Thankful for the day you've given us, Father, that we can come and look into your word and look at the beginning of the Holy Week story that we know when all looks dark in the world, that there's still hope. And even though Jesus is marching into his death, but we know the rest of the story that he was killed, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. So, Father, we thank you for that precious gift. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the story begins with Jesus approaching Jerusalem. He's approaching the time of his death, and he's fully aware of that. As he gets on his way, he's coming down near the Mount of Olives, as he goes over the Mount of Olives, he starts down, and he's close to Bethphage and Bethany, as it says in the text. As they get there, he sends two of the disciples out to secure him a colt that's tied up in the town. I love this part. He says, now if anyone asks you why you need it, just tell them that the Lord needs it. So they go into the town, they find the colt, and they untie it, and the guy walks up and says, hey, why are you untying my colt? The Lord needs it, so he lets it go. That's a pretty good anti-joke. An anti-joke is a joke that is not really a joke, but they're true, and that's what makes it funny. So like, what is red and smells like blue paint? Red paint. 
Hmm. So what did the farmer say to the guy stealing his tractor? Hey, don't steal my tractor. Okay, you're not that crowd, are you? <laughs> All right. Sounded better when I wrote it. I used to think of this section of Scripture was saying that Jesus had obviously made plans in advance. That this fellow knows what Je- that Jesus is going to show up and send a couple of people to get the cult. And when they show up, this is kind of like a code word. So that they knew they were taking it for him. But the more I look at this, I don't think the point is that that Luke is trying to make is that Jesus was really good at logistical forethought. I think what Luke is really saying is that Jesus knows the future. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows what's coming. He's not surprised by any of it. Jesus knows why he is riding into Jerusalem. And he knows what he is riding into. Now, I can tell you that there's a cultural background here. It's called honoria, which is that at certain times a dignitary could procure personal property for their own use if they needed to. It would have been normal enough for one not to be bothered by that, the honoria would have extended to and include rabbis and other dignitaries. So it would not have been out of question for someone to come along and say, we need to use this for a little bit because our Lord needs it. This dignitary needs it. This rabbi needs it. Then the man whose cult this is would simply say, okay, well then go ahead and take it. There is something to say for the maturity that is on display here. I praise God for people who have matured to the point that when the Lord says, or the Lord has need of something they have, they give it freely. Because they know for whatever they have, when it is in the Lord's hands, it is better than if I keep it for myself. That type of maturity. Now I get to brag on you, church. I get to boast on you in the Lord. Because you've done this. And I can't tell you how thankful I am for the generosity that you displayed when Jenna went on her mission trip recently. You guys went over and above what she needed. And if you remember... A couple of years ago, our furnace went out. We put, up, put out an urgent need to replace that funeral. And you guys came up, came up big time. We came to you and said, the Lord has need of this. And you said, okay. Then you said, freely take this, for it's better than in, than in my hands. So I praise God for the work that he does in you and for you. But here in this text, 
we see this really interesting moment that Jesus makes some interesting choices, if you will. He is approaching Bethany and Bethphage, which is about two miles from Jerusalem. And if you don't know the story up to this point, Jesus has walked the entire way. Everywhere he had gone, they walked. But now, two miles from Jerusalem, he decides to ride. This is an interesting choice. The next interesting choice is what he chooses to ride. He chooses to ride a colt, the foal of a donkey that no one has ever ridden. You see, Jesus makes the decision here that provides us with a study of contrast. Triumphal entries were common enough in the ancient world that they would have been rec- it would have been recognizable to see what is going on. Everyone would know what is happening. But not so common that people wouldn't have thought that it wasn't extraordinary or some momentous occasion. But we recognize it for what it is. You see, in ancient Rome, generals returned from exceptional victories and were celebrated with what is called a triumphus. It is a procession in which the victor shows off the spoils of war, is surrounded by the leaders of the armies, and then in a train, a bunch of their captives. The victor would enter wearing a crown of laurels, which is made of greenery, on a chariot pulled with white horses, and then they would go up to the temple of Jupiter and offer sacrifices. And all along the way, the people would shout praises and honorifics. Jesus enters not on a chariot pulled by white horses, but instead on a humble donkey. The image of Jesus riding in on a colt is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See Your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey, of a donkey. Jesus' choice of a donkey has massive implications because we as his followers live in the light of his example. You see, and I want you to hear me. There is a day coming when Jesus, the Son of Man, riding on the cloud, clouds, will come to judge the world, carrying the scepter and the sword, according to Revelation. That day will come. But for now, he rides in on a humble donkey, no scepter, no sword. But we have to ask ourselves, as people of the church, are we not sometimes seduced by the idea of the scepter and the sword? That we want to rule the way the nations rule. We want power, the power that this world offers. But sometimes we miss 
the power that is found in following our humble and lowly king in submission. Now Jesus comes in, he's not wearing a crown of laurels. For we know he's about to wear a crown of thorns. Whereas generals would normally rejoice over their conquest, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and weeps. He doesn't go and offer sacrifices to the temple. Instead, he goes and denounces the temple. What kind of entry is this? And then we reach verse 35. I mentioned earlier that some of the gospel authors make their own choices to convey the story, and Luke makes some interesting choices of his own. I want to spend the last of our time together, and I want to talk about three things that Luke tends to focus on in Luke 19, which is slightly different than the other gospel writers. First one is, how do they praise? The second one is, who praises? And the third one is, why do they praise? Look closely at verse 35 and 36 again. Let's look at how they praise. It says they brought it to Jesus, being the donkey, and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. They put their cloaks down in front of Jesus' donkey. Did you notice that even though it's Palm Sunday, and on Palm Sunday we're supposed to preach out of the text of the triumphal entry, and we know that in some versions, people start waving palm branches and laying them down. People are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, to David, the son of God, or Hosanna in the highest, to the son of David. Remember when you were in kids' church on Palm Sunday? Yeah, we used to do this. And then they would come along and they would lay it down on the road. But Luke doesn't give us that part of the story, does he? Luke doesn't have any mentions of hosannas. And Luke doesn't mention palm branches. Luke gives us cloaks on the ground. Hosanna literally means save me now. So the proclamation of Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna is not like saying hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hosanna is an appeal to God. It quite literally means to save us. So the crowd is yelling, save us, save us, save us. You see, palm branches in many ways, we're seen as a code for rebellion. Which really doesn't look like what Luke is trying to tell us here. And if you look, they do make an interesting choice here. They replace a word in what they're shouting. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. In verse 38, where they say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, which they're quoting here, with the Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Psalm 118 doesn't say, blessed is the king. 
The the psalmist says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's more on this in a minute. But they know who they're talking about when they say king in Luke's telling of the story. But then what do people do? But what people do then is to immediately link all that's happening here to peace. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now when they lay their cloaks on the ground, that is submitting. Something that you did when someone greater than you came. You would lay your cloak on the ground. By doing this, you were declaring that someone with power greater than you had arrived. Someone whose authority was greater than you has arrived. And I think that Luke doesn't mention palm branches and hosannas. I I think he doesn't mention them because he wants to highlight the fact that the cloaks are for a reason. Because when you highlight the palm branches and the hosannas, and they're in the other gospels, I know that, You are praising God for what he will do. He will save us. He will deliver us. He will liberate us. But when you lay your cloaks out, you're praising God for who he is. He is greater than me, even if he doesn't do exactly what I want. And because he is the king of kings, I will praise him. And because he is the prince of peace, I will praise him. And because he is the wonderful counselor, I will praise him. And because he is the son of God, I will praise him. And because he is my Lord and Savior, I will praise him. Now let's look at who praises. Verse 37 says, When he had come near to the road, or he come near to where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So answer this question, who is praising in this text? That's your cue. Okay. The disciples, the believers. In Matthew's version of these events, it is the whole crowd that is shouting. The whole crowd is fired up, but crowds are a fickle thing. Because this, in just a few short chapters, this is the same crowd that will be shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Because they have been stirred up the other way. And Luke doesn't tell us about the crowd. Instead he says, let me tell you more about the believers. 
the disciples. May have been that they were a little more quieter, a little more subdued. But it means so much because this is not a crowd getting carried away. This is a group of followers that had seen enough to know who Jesus is. And this is why they quote Psalm 118, but they, qu- but they quote it, but change the wording so that they make sure that they call him a king. Because to the crowd in Matthew, they may know him as he, but to the disciples in Luke, they know him for who he really is. Now, some of you may not know me all that well. I get that. Most of you probably know me as John. Some of you may refer to me as brother, preacher, or elder. And those are okay. That's who I am with the church. I'm going to, to be honest with you, I don't know a lot of you the way I would like to, but I'm going to call you brother and sister until I get to know you a little better. That is how you identify me because of the relationship that we have. However, if you go to a family gathering of the Anderson household, which have been too few and far between, you may be surprised to hear the name Sleek and hear me answer to that. Okay? Let me tell you a little story, if I may. Um, My dad was a traveling salesman for many, many years. And so... My dad was impeccably dressed. He was the kind that wore dress pants, slacks out to mow the lawn. Okay? That's who he was. It wasn't until later on in his life that he discovered blue jeans and such. But always impeccably dressed. Always well-maintained. And so he used hair product a lot. And he loved to use bro cream. Okay? If you don't remember what bro cream is, it's a little hair tonic. And the catchphrase of bro cream was? A little dabble do ya. Absolutely. Well, I used about 90% of a tube of bro cream in my hair. And so that is how I got the name Sleek. That is how my family and a few close friends know me. However, if some random person were to suddenly come up to me and calling me by sleek, I would question whether or not they really know me. If you call me John, we may be a little bit closer in our relationship. And you may know me to some degree. However, if you call me by my full name, which is John Andrew Anderson, you're my mother, and I know I'm in huge trouble. (laughs) That is the way it goes. We may be even so close that some of you may have a nickname for me. Please don't tell me what that is. 
Okay? I'm, remember, I'm somewhat sensitive and I have a fragile ego. But this group of disciples, they know who Jesus is. And it changes the way they respond. Church, because if we know Jesus Christ, we can't sit silently. We can't just sit here and golf clap. We have to get louder. We have to proclaim how good God is. The disciples lift up the words of Psalm 118, loud praise, because they know, as it says in Psalm 118, verse 21, I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The disciples in Luke knew that their salvation had come. They know that the king of the kings is in their midst. And they can't hold back their praise. They are not following the crowd. They are praising because what they have seen. I'd like to go a little bit deeper if you'll allow me for just a few minutes. Because I believe wholeheartedly. What you have seen God do is greater than what you've praised him for. Let me repeat that. What you have seen God do is greater than what you have praised him for. Here's what I mean by this. You may have praised him for saving you, but saving you is greater and worth more praise than you have given him for it. Did you catch that? He saved you. And you praised him for it. But what he did in saving you is, is greater than the amount of praise that you gave him for it. And he has done even more than that for you. I praise Jesus because I've been a member here for almost 30 years. And in that time, I've been able to speak from both the pulpit and many different classroom settings, different churches, and I've been able to speak from the pulpit at well over 400 times. And I praise God for each and every one of those opportunities. But I need you to know that while I'm thankful for those opportunities that God has given me, God has been better to me in those 30 years that I give him praise for. I praise you, God, for my wife. Because she has put up with my snoring and forgetfulness and my shortcomings for 32 years. That's where you say amen. Yeah. That is 11,846 days of experiencing the blessing of someone who shows me the way that God loves me. You see, I give thanks to Jesus for that, but the truth is he has been better to me in that love than I have given him praise and thanks for. 
I also praised Jesus for 60 plus years of life on this side of heaven. That translates to 22,019 days of new mercies. And I have needed every one of them. And I praise him, but the truth is he's been better than that to me. We praise him for who he is because we know him for ourselves and that every promise that God makes, God keeps. Because all the promises of God, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, are yes and amen. Don't believe me? Look for yourself. 2 Corinthians verse one, or chapter 1, verse 20, I'm sorry. For no matter how many promises that God has made, they are yes in Christ. And through him the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. Because if God has said it, I will believe it. I will stand on it. I will trust God to do what he says he will do. And that's why we preach the Bible. Because the Bible says that even though weeping may endure for a night, joy comes in the morning. The Bible says that my God will supply all of my needs according to his riches in Christ. The Bible also says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I will stand on those promises. And I know that if I endure to the end, when the end of the story comes, I will be victorious. So don't give up if you're waiting, because you will reap in due season if you keep the faith. Those that wait upon the Lord will rise up with wings like eagle. They will run and not grow tired. They will walk but not faint. Those who humble themselves will be lifted up. So because these are very real and precious promises, I can't help but give him my praise. As Luke says, they shout their praises. But we say our praise. They shout their praise. You see, the people with him start making noise because they know who he is and they can't keep quiet because they know what he can do. Our praise is pleasing to the Lord. Let everything that is in me that has breath praise the Lord. Let me tell you this. I've been studying for quite a while. And I believe worship without out loud praise is incomplete. All right, now follow me here. It would be just like if I said, someone walked up and said, we came here to worship. And there wasn't a thing done to engage my mind. Well, let me back that up. It would just be like if you said, we came here to worship and there wasn't a thing done to engage my mind. But yet you chose not to engage your mind. You didn't pay attention to any of it. You sat there, bored, 
not even listening. And if you did that and asked the question, did I worship? For the most part, I would hope Christians would say, your worship was incomplete. Let me turn that around just a little bit. And tell you, if all I or Dale or anyone else who was up here, if all we did was engage your mind and your spirit was not touched, if your passion was not stirred by the music we sing, by the testimonies you hear, by the communion we share, by all the things that are here, if your passion is not stirred up, then you're missing something from your worship. Because our worship is all of us offered to God. And I know, I can already hear it. Some of you are sitting there thinking, and would like to say to me, John, that's not how I worship. I see people who do that. They're good at lifting their hands. They're good at crying out. And they're good at saying amen. I mean to say amen, but that's not, just not how I am. That's not how I worship. And that argument sounds pretty good to me, but here's, my, here's the dilemma. It's not your worship. For if it was your worship, then you wouldn't have to offer it because you could decide the way you wanted to offer it. But it's not yours. It belongs to God. And as God says, I want you to worship me in spirit and truth, God says, I want you to worship me with all your heart, with all your strength, and all your mind. I want you to seek me, God says. I want all of it lifted up to my glory. You see, Palm Sunday is supposed to be a loud Sunday. Because you know who Jesus is. And truth be told, you're... Your praises should aggravate a few, a few Pharisees. Let me repeat that. Because you know who Jesus is, and the truth be told, your praises should aggravate some Pharisees. I was hoping to get a few amens in there, but. i got to be honest, I've preached the whole message just to get to that. It says in verse 39 of Luke 19, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Can you quiet them down? And I found this to be very true. That whenever God's people get, gather to praise Pharisees tend to show up.
that didn't stop in the first century. Can you calm them down? Could you tell them not to worship like that? It makes me uncomfortable. And if they could stop, then maybe I could enjoy my worship. Jesus' reply? Well, there's just simply some things that need to be said. That was his answer. You may not like the way they're saying it, but there are some things that need to be said. And if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus seems to imply that those who really know him, they are never going to be quiet because we know who Jesus is and we know what he's done for them. We just can't, can't be quiet. And you can't shut them or shut us up. We are going to keep saying that. We're going to keep praising him. Even if, it, even if it bothers you and you tell us to quiet down, we can't because the truth needs to be spoken. Because the faithful witness cannot be stopped. And because even a rock or perhaps even a box of rocks is not dumb enough to be silent when salvation is near. You can't stay silent if you know who he is and if you know what he's done. You simply can't be quiet. He says that if we're quiet, even the stones will cry out. Excuse me. (coughs) You see, here's what is so amazing. Salvation has come near, and it's not just a human thing. We have this tendency to think that what God is doing and all that God is accomplishing in Christ has to do with us humans who needed help. And yes, praise God, it has to do with us humans who needed help. But that's not all that it has to do with. You see, there's a bigger picture here. All of creation is involved. When humans first sinned, it was the whole ground that was cursed. God said, you're going to try and raise up food, but it's only going to give you thorns and thistles. The prophets tell of a time when lion and lambs are going to lie down together. But there will be a time when cows and bears can take a walk together, when children and snakes can play by each other. Because all of creation is going to be included when that salvation comes with Jesus. A star in the heavens declared his birth. The ground shook and split open when he died. The sun turned its face away and went dark when he was on the cross. And the whole universe together shares in the manifest glory of the faithful witness 
to God Almighty. As it looks forward to being set free from the decay and bondage, it is in due to sin. And so, of course, if we were silent, you better believe that the rocks will cry out. Because maybe they have more sense than we do. On that day when Jesus comes back, when it's, it's the book of Hebrews says, everything is shaken. And when all that is shaken off can be shaken off, and all that can fly away has flown away, and all that is left is what is permanent, we are going to open our eyes and we are going to see that every bush is burning with the presence of God. Plus every rock will be singing at the top of its voice that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? So let us stand and sing because no rock is going to take our place. Let's pray. God, our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for being an amazing God. I thank you for your love and your grace and your mercies. Father, create a heart of worship in us. Create in us a heart that can't be quiet. For we know what you have done. We know the promises that you have given to us. So Father, we stand on those. Father, again, we just lift up all our praises to you. Father, we're so thankful that you've given us the ability to worship. So, Father, may our worship be pleasing to your ears. We just can't stay silent because you are near to us. So, Father, I praise you and thank you.